Good afternoon from Toronto. It's change for good. It's Thursday, July the 9th. It's um, one o'clock here in Toronto. We'll just give people a few minutes to to sign on. I see people are coming in. We have the great pleasure of this is, I believe, the 14th change for good episode in a row. And um, today I have the super great and inspiring privilege of speaking with Mark Tewksbury, uh, who's joining us today. Mark um, is a Olympic swimming gold medalist, an educator, a social change leader, an all-around inspiring person. So, Mark, I just so appreciate you having the conversation with me today. Thanks, Paul, and hello from Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Great to be. It's great to great to be doing this. Um, Mark and I have had a great, you know, uh, opportunity to have had a number of conversations over a number of months, and. Um, I've never ceased to be uh, uh, inspired by by what you're doing, and um, and it always you know has stuck with me ever since we first met. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure. So we um, uh, for everyone here uh, who hasn't joined a Change for Good conversation before, um, we created Change for Good really as a place of inspiration, a place of community for other social change leaders and. Uh, and practitioners around the world and really to give you all an opportunity to hear from people like Mark about what they're doing, how they're thinking differently, how they're starting to think about building back better and, um, and, um, and that's why we're here. And the other thing I as always want to remind everyone is that it's not just a conversation between Mark and myself, it's, uh, it's an opportunity for everyone here to, who has a question for Mark I would say don't hold back. Just share what you think and we'll do our best to, to get to those. Um, so uh, we only have 30 minutes, so we're gonna jump into it um, right now. So Mark, um, just to kick things off, you know, I'm at home, you're at home. What's life been like for you at home since COVID started? What's, what, it, what can you share about how things are the same or different for you? Well, it's been a pretty radical change for my lifestyle. I tended to live in Calgary, but do most of my work in Toronto, uh, whether that was speaking or giving um, uh, seminars or doing an actual 12-week training program that had people in a classroom. Um, so that's changed radically. And I, you know, I used to think that it was pretty cool to have a bi-coastal life, kind of, you know, to, to have a place downtown Toronto and also be in Calgary. But I've realized through this whole pandemic that um, it was maybe a lot cooler in my head than it was in reality. I've actually very much enjoyed being grounded. It's the first time I think in over 30 years that I've been home in one place this long. And I didn't realize it, but I was craving discipline, routine, those things that you take for granted when your life is just sort of you know, set and, and you know where you're going to be for a while. My, my routine before was getting on a plane, showing up, and half the work of my life was just getting to the, the place where I had to be. And so, you know, when we talk about change for good, there's going to be a lot of changes that I've adopted that um, I won't go back. You know, I, I think it's helped me find a, a much more sustainable lifestyle for myself. I'm now 52 years old. So, you know, 20 to 50, you can handle that kind of crazy life. But I think at some point, I needed to make some changes. I'd already started. This pandemic has kind of accelerated the long-term sustainability. But simple things like cleaning the house every Sunday, not drinking Monday to Thursday, <laughs> like just these sort of little rules and disciplines put in place has been 
made a very meaningful impact in my life. Well, thanks for sharing that. I feel like, um, and you and I have spoken about this before, I think that one of the interesting things that we were talking about is that perhaps one of the things that's most um, important about this situation we're in is it's sort of amplifying things for some people. Clearly, there's there's it feels in many ways very, very positive. And, and I feel very privileged and feel that way, just like you said. And at the same time, there are lots of people, the majority of people perhaps are not like that. Mm -hmm. and And it's not all pleasant paul like it's not like it's been a a cakewalk and i I mean i think it's been devastating to see that my livelihood has changed Mm -hmm. i have to pivot and there's no guarantee that anything i'm going to do is is going to work in the future (laughs) but but i just Mm -hmm. feel like i've got a better base to start from a a more solid grounded place to to attack the the new situation we find ourselves in now you know one of the things that, that we were talking about last week um you're on the board of Special Olympics Canada, uh, amazing organization. And um, so I hadn't really thought about it before, but you know, there's an organization, people with, who are the participants, uh, athletes in Special Olympics, clearly they're not being able to do what they had before with the organization and, um, and uh, an organization they probably, I'm sure, depend on. Can you just sort of paint a picture of what the situation is like from your point of view for those for those special um, Olympics athletes today? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, special Olympics athletes are one of our more vulnerable parts of mm -hmm. society. They're people with an intellectual disability. Um, Mm -hmm. Historically before special Olympics, a lot of these um, participants in, in, in our movement had nowhere to go. They had no sense of community. They had no, ability to build confidence and, and sport has really provided such an incredible platform for social change to happen for that particular community. And of course, through this pandemic, as we know, all sports facilities across the country were closed. So overnight, all of a sudden we took, kind of took a step 50 years backwards in a way and, and we're back mm-hmm. to that isolated um, feeling without community. But it's been a really great um, learning experience, you know, some highlights, you know, leadership matters. And and I think we see that across the board, whether it's governments, organizations, companies, nonprofits. Um, We have a a confederation models, confederate models, so it's chapters across the the country. But I have to say that the communication, the unification, the people coming together very quickly with a clear plan, all on the same song sheet, made a huge impact to sort of starting to provide leadership and clear guidance to the over 50,000 participants in Special Olympics across Canada. I think that we saw the the value of networks, because before all this happened, we spent years building up uh, sport councils, leadership councils. I I helped create something called the Champions Network, which is a network of celebrity athletes that promote and and try to advocate for the Special Olympics athletes. And just as one little example, so that network was able to be mobilized as soon as this pandemic hit to start to create some video content so that our community didn't feel so isolated. And that evolved. Our community soon learned about Zoom and they started to have meetings with their their sport groups. Um, Special Olympics athletes are famous for loving to dance and high five. So there's been lots of DJ (laughs) people like just, just getting creative right and and using those networks seeing the community rally 
And finally, just finding the opportunities. So what started as some sort of celebrity athlete videos turned into some meaningful Zoom meetings, turned into some like a series of skill building videos that will actually help our athletes be better once we get through the other side of this pandemic, building their baseline. So been a lot of lessons learned through it, through this really difficult time. And we're now slowly opening up across the country, which comes with its own challenges when you're a federated model, because it's different mm -hmm. in every province at the moment, but we're making it through. And do you, I don't know if it's too early to know this, but um, as you're looking forward for it uh, to the Special Olympics, as more opening and, and things, quote, getting, you know, the new normal, what, do you have a sense of what that looks like? Given all these positive changes, you know, like, how are things for that community going to be different in the future? Well, it's a great question, and I don't, we don't have the answers yet, mm. much like, you know, the Olympic movement. Our movement is, um, which I'm part of both, but I'm also director of the Olympic Committee, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, you know, ultimately, Special Olympics, it happens in programs across mm. the country from coast to coast to coast, uh, 365 days a year. But it's, it's a stream that leads to local competitions, provincial competitions, national competitions, and then a world games. And that entire uh, games stream is still very much under question. Mm -hmm. We're not sure when we can get back to some sort of normalcy there. Is it safe to even start planning a, a summer games for next year? There's just mm -hmm. so many unknown variables. But I think that we're doing our best to make decisions quickly. I think the hardest part is when people don't know when there's just a big question mark. And even if it's a disappointing outcome, even if we decide we're not gonna hold games at this period, at least people then can make plans and, and make adjustments. One of the things that makes me, what you said makes me think of, I feel like, and um, maybe it's just me, but I think there's so much emphasis on the games, the, the actual competition itself and so on. And one of the things that I know you're a huge advocate for, which I, I don't think enough people are really uh, aware of, is the role of sport in social change. And um, tell us about that for those people that, that maybe aren't, aren't, don't, for whom they don't really understand that, or thinking more of the games, the competitions, and so on, the winning, the medals. But tell us about that part of it. Sure. And I'm going to unpack this in, in different phases. Mm. So we'll start with Special mm. Olympics. I mean, I think okay. for sure, going forward, we're going to put a lot more emphasis on the short term on community based programs on making sure that just getting back to your local pool, gymnasium, soccer field is possible, because that's the essence of the movement. And mm. that simple opportunity to participate is where social change starts to happen. Mm. Um, I've seen it with Special Olympics because this, this experience transcends sport. It gives people A, community, B, a sense of, of confidence, of purpose, of having um, a goal in life, a sense of accomplishment, all those wonderful things. But now I'm gonna sort of switch gears and say, you know, for me personally, um, I grew up as a closeted gay guy in a very different time where the world was an extremely different place. In, in, and I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, which is also a, a different climate than it is, say, in, in Toronto. Mm. And for me, I just saw that I needed to belong somewhere. And even though I, I wasn't open about who I was, because I was good at swimming, it gave me a place to have community and ultimately success. And then on the flip side of that, I could use that platform, Olympic champion, to challenge people's idea of what it means to be gay. Mm. 
because at that time it wasn't spoken about in sport at all. And so in a, in a roundabout way, sport created the platform for me to actually challenge societal's behaviors and attitudes towards the LGBTQ community. So I saw on an individual level just how much social change can happen. But when you think about a movement, I think that it's a tough one. And, and I'd really like to dissect this a little bit because while I was used, able to use my platform to change things for LGBTQ community, the Olympic movement itself did not. And it took until 2014 in the lead up to Sochi, where the Russian government put out this propaganda law targeting specifically the 2S LGBTQ community and put that whole community in a really precarious position going into games feeling threatened and, and very unsafe. That forced the hand after the Olympics, I will say. Unfortunately, it was not done before, but it forced the hand of the International Olympic Committee and the Canadian Olympic Committee to change their Olympic charters, to add sexual orientation in their non-discrimination clause. So again, social change came through sport, but from pressure from the outside. But now we're really faced with an interesting proposition in this world of Black Lives Matter and enormous protests and civic unrest across the globe. Um, we've got Olympics coming up, hopefully in Tokyo in 2021, and there's a lot of talk about this thing called Rule 50, and it prohibits athletes from demonstrating on the play field, on the podium, or in the opening ceremony. And there's a lot of controversy around that, and, and it's a tough one to, to unpack because on one hand, it seems ridiculous. Like, why don't we just let athletes express themselves? But there's something to be said about the, the neutrality of the Olympic Games, that when you're on that medal podium, if I've got a gold medalist from Israel and a silver medalist from Iran, they're going to have extremely different political protests. <laughs> and what happens when that starts to happen on, on the play of field? Um, it's also kind of worth noting that a lot of people that would like to use that maybe to, to protest or to, to show their demonstration against something, let's say somebody coming from a, a tyrant, a, a mm. terrible country in the world where they feel they have no human rights. Well, mm -hmm. if they protest, they probably aren't safe to go home. So there's an argument mm -hmm. to be made that it's just kind of furthering the privilege of people that live in countries where we're free to protest, but really doesn't really help the people that, that live in countries where every day they can't, so the Olympics don't make anything different. So the IOC has really thrown it back to the, the International Olympic Committee has thrown it back to the athletes of the world um, to try to come up with some solutions. I'm really intrigued to see what they'll come back with because just quickly, historically, think about Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968 mm -hmm. and the, the mm -hmm. Black Power salute. They were mm -hmm. severely punished for that political protest. Their, their careers were never the same after. I think mm -hmm. of Colin Kaepernick going down on a knee and of course he's regarded as a hero now and he's picked up by Nike for ads but he's still a free agent he's not playing football and that's what he loves to do so uh, there's a lot more we could do with social change but it's how do we do that in a way that is effective and appropriate well uh, yes and uh, also what you said makes me think about um, you know as you know, the, the the world that we're in largely is working with corporations to help them be agents of social change as well. And what you just said, you know, I think that that, that those questions are, are 
important on all sides now. You know, so you've got a situation where, and look at Black Lives Matter and the corporate response to this. A lot of people are saying this is a kind of bandwagon response as opposed to actually being something which is genuine and real. On the other hand, you've got some um, corporations, I think, who've um, who responded in very authentic ways and see the opportunity perhaps to become real advocates for change in a way they haven't been before. Um, and um, that, I think, um, also makes me think about, about another part of your world, uh, which I'd love you to share some about because I, and I don't know if this is connecting with some of the advocacy work that we're talking about. But I know in the last, I don't know, re recently in the last years, you've started um, something called Great Traits, the corporate um, championship program. And um, I'd love you to share just a little bit about that. And does that program intersect with any of the things that we're talking about here? Absolutely. So thanks. Thanks for that. So Great Traits has been around for about a dozen years. Um, we started, that's, oh, don't worry. That's perfect. And, and, and we went, to, we came out with a book called The Great Traits of Champions. And in it, we really outlined 24 traits, eight per section of the book. And that became kind of our curriculum or our matrix to, to create from. And for about 10 years, we would create programs for companies, mostly sort of in the 90 minutes to three hour, um, really one and done very not impactful, if you will. We did our best to leave people with tools, but at some point, you know, my business partner is Debbie Muir. She's one of the Olympic movement's most winning coaches. She wants to train people. She doesn't want to be in and out and, you know, one and done. And so we decided that we would teach all 24 traits to people over a 12 week period. So at the end of the day, they would have access to all these leadership tools and this vast repertoire, just like Debbie and I did. And we launched that about a year and a half ago, and it went fantastically well. We had five classes go through until this pandemic hit. Um, we were really lucky that 85% of the program was delivered via Zoom or on Slack. Mm. So we were kind of moving in this direction. And now everyone's mm. sick of Zoom. Mm. Thanks a lot, mm. world. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to adjust to we're that. We're contributing to that here, maybe. I hope not. <laughs> but uh, but um, abs I think where, where it really dovetails into this work is that we believe that leadership is a, is a pathway. And just like in sport, once you're identified as a, as a high potential athlete, you go on a very regimented athlete development pathway that breaks down specific skills that you have to master piece by piece by piece that over time become this collective that turns into a world-class athlete. We approach leadership in the same way. We, over 12 weeks, teach 24 traits, each with little skill sets in them, and very seemingly uh, simple, but over time, there's this aha moment where it's like, wow, there's this, this vast amount of information. And what's fun is it's the continuum starts with leading yourself, the achiever traits, moves into leading others with leadership. Then it moves into positive, sustainable leadership with this idea of legacy. And I think hmm. that makes our program really unique is are these three points of view and this continuum um, there's 24 traits, uh, there's 26 letters in the alphabet, and I tell people at the beginning, it's a bit like learning a new language. It's going to be awkward at first, and there's going to be new concepts, but over time, stick with it. There's a moment where things start to connect, and suddenly you start to speak the language. Well, and you know, what we'll do is we'll share afterwards, uh, everyone can, you know, the, the link to this you should find out more about it when Mark and I, when you, when you, we first got together, I think you gave me a little test. 
with, with your the cars. I can't remember if I, what that well, what I did or not. But uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you know, I probably failed it. You know, but uh, anyway, but the um, the other thing. So within your this whole system that you just described, um, is there a place for you know participants? Is there a diversity aspect of this? Uh, how does systemic racism? fall into that. I mean, that just seems like it's got to be part of that conversation for leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mean, essentially our program is, is I would say leadership essentials for the next generation, newer leaders. I I like to, you know, we talk about the senior leadership team. This is Mm -hmm. more like the junior leadership team. I Mm -hmm. I think I wish I, if I had had this early in my career, wow, that all of these tools at my disposal. So no matter who you are, doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, what sexuality you are, what gender you are, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. So no question about it, you know, it doesn't matter, it applies to everybody. But within the traits, absolutely. I think of be aware and, and influencing the environment around you mm-hmm. to be the most successful to, to create the environment for the people you lead to do well. So obviously that in today's world takes into mm-hmm. account these social movements that are happening that we have to be aware how does that impact us our business and the world that we're living in i think of a legacy trait celebrate humanity uh, appreciating people's difference but also seeing our similarities to find that that humanity that connects us i think of make possible have a why not why not attitude and and apply that to anything and everyone so that everyone has the same access to to potential and possibility so absolutely a lot of the traits if you look at it through the lens of, of social change and Black Lives Matter and making real change in the world, they work. I guess I just, it just occurs to me to get your thoughts on something, something I've been thinking about a lot, you know, as I said in the, you know, like you've got programs like yours that are the real deal. And there's a lot of things that I think are not, you know, and um, a lot of action that's a lot of talk that isn't backed up by real action, I think sometimes uh, from lots of different sectors and people. but. Through your eyes, how, when you're looking at what, you know, an organization, person, a corporation, whoever is doing or saying they're doing, how do you actually kind of think, well, that's, that's the real thing or that's, maybe that's not. You know? That's a good question. Yeah. There's a little bit of an authenticity meter mm. that I think we mm. all have. Um, and, and I'm just thinking of watching the newscast every night. <laughs> I feel it when I'm watching the Canadian leadership. I don't feel it when I'm watching the American leadership. Right. It's just, a, <laughs> it's just <laughs> the way it is. I think the thing is, Paul, if you're talking about social change, you know, um, it takes time. Change takes mm. time. And I think that you know, when people say that, you know, leadership, come and study this for two days, we're going to do this intensive, and you get all this great theory, then you're going to go back. I don't think that works. I I think that people are slowly waking up to the idea that unless I can apply it, unless I do it, that the learning doesn't stick, which is why we do it over 12 weeks. We just sort of very incrementally each week dish out new and little bit of skill building um, so that it's doable. And each week you have to submit an assignment that tells us how you applied the stuff that we taught that week. And you can imagine week one, week two, week three, mm-hmm. by the time you get to week 12, it's actually changed people's way of being. I think the other thing that's cool about this program is um, mm-hmm. it's really like a coaching approach in that um, mm-hmm. 
the athlete does the work. <laughs> the mm. coach guides them, gives them the skill, but the athlete has to actually go and do it. And we take the exact same approach with our leadership training. So we guide you, we tell you what to do, but we also provide the framework to show you how, how you apply that and then you feed it back. So it's been really fun to watch. It's, it's a transformative experience for people. And uh, we've actually had a lot of senior leaders, which I was a little bit worried about because oh, it's a new oh. course. And I know oh. a lot more senior people that are trying it out to see where it might fit within the organization. But I, mm -hmm. I think that the, the really cool thing is, everybody, when you go back to the fundamentals, even if you're like a CEO, you sharpen your base a little bit more. And our philosophy is the, the stronger your base, the higher your performance will be. I love it. Well, uh, there's about a gazillion questions that I feel <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm just trying in my own mind, probably, you know, in the time that we have left to think about the things that I think that other people would most like to hear about. Um, but we have a question here from someone I'll just share uh, from Libye, I think, uh, I think the name is. Um, who says, Mark, you mentioned that in the past, change for the LGBTQ community came from the outside. What is your perspective of what the outside can do to support Black Lives Matter during the Olympics? Great question, Olivier. And Olivier was one of our, our graduates from the Great Traits Corporate Champions Program. So there awesome. you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, unfortunately, I think that social change, I've, I've long believed this because I, I was one of the ones back in 1999 that was on the inside of the International Olympic Committee. And I just saw how corrupt it was, especially the, the bidding process to host yeah. an Olympics. Of course, it was the biggest prize in the world. There was no accountability. It was kind of chosen like a private club. And you can imagine how that process just over years and years came undone. You know, it, it just wasn't fair anymore. And when I, I decided to step out of the Olympic movement and, and on the outside, put pressure, use the media, use the, the sort of pressure that I could to make change happen on the inside. But on the inside, there needed to be some change-minded people that could then lead the charge. And I've always believed that that tension from the outside and the inside, they work together. So, you know, just like the change for the LGBTQ movement in sport, happen because of Sochi and that outside factor, something is going to happen in the Olympic movement in Tokyo because of the outside pressure of Black Lives Matter. Um, I hope the Athletes Commission is that agent of change within that really puts mm. that pressure on the leadership. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the, the outside pressure definitely is gonna help make change on the inside. And thanks, I'm uh, gonna get to another question here. There's, there's some really interesting ones here. Um, won't get into the whole uh, sort of preamble here, but I think the main question um, that, um, that's being asked is, are there spaces off the Olympic field to play that could be created for athletes to have the opportunity to share their concerns, show allyship and so on? And um, what are your thoughts on that? Great question. And, and again, this is, this is where I struggle sometimes because I've been an athlete that's always protested my entire life. I feel like I've you know, stepped out, ah, IOC, and I'm gay, and ah, you know, whatever, drugs in sport. Like, uh, and at the Olympics, they're actually, you're allowed to protest via your social media platform in the mixed zone. So once you're finished your competition, when you leave that field of play, you go somewhere to a change room or a warm okay. down pool. And on that journey is, are all the media of the world. Mm 
and they'll pull you in for a quick comment. And, and absolutely in that mix zone, you're allowed to say what you want. What the IOC is trying to protect are the, the sort of major assets, the, the field of play that to, to date never has had sponsors there, it just has the Olympic rings. That's part mm. of the beauty of, we kind of buy into collective bargaining when we go to the Olympics that say we're gonna be part of this. Mm. And to do this, we agree to these terms. Um, they don't want you to protest on the field of play, on the medal podium, on the opening or closing ceremony. Because again, those are like what we've collectively bargained to be a part of as being part of a Canadian Olympic team going mm. to Olympic Games. Um, I think that's got, I think there's room to make some adjustments. I'm not sure what that looks like yet. I think I'm open and I hope leadership continues to be open. I'm at least open as a leader of the Canadian Olympic Committee as one of the board members to mm -hmm. seeing what our athletes commission comes back and how we can protect them to make sure that they feel like, you know, they're, they're getting the experience that they would like out of the Olympics. But it's, it's not simple. And yeah. I, I think I've learned as I've gotten older, much older, <laughs> you know, that idealism in our 20s is fabulous. But the nuances of how do we make all of this work sometimes are, are more complicated than maybe we give credit to. And as you said before, take longer. Like there's a, I think we're living in a world where there's a kind of a, a um, bias to trying to simplify everything, you know? Yeah. In a world of tweets, you know, that you know, so it doesn't happen with a tweet, you know? Yeah. And, but I'm confident that Canada can play a role here. I mean, I think that historically Canada has. I was leading the charge to try to um, clean up the site selection process, created an organization called Oath, Olympic Advocates Together Honorably back in the day. Uh, we've always, from Dick Pound to Becky Scott, have been champions of clean sport. Um, the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport has been a lead in the anti-doping fight. So Canada mm. has played a very big role in social change issues related to sport, and I'm confident we'll continue to do so. Well, and I think that's our opportunity in general here. You know, I think we've got an opportunity as a country to, to do exactly what you said. You know, so. and, and actually, you know, we were the first. So it was so interesting when, when the pandemic hit and the International Olympic Committee kept saying, the games will go on no matter what. <laughs> it's like there was, a, there was a moment in time where, okay, that was okay to say, and then there was a moment when it wasn't. And I, I felt that mm -hmm. moment. It was like, mm -hmm. this is mm -hmm. not the right messaging anymore. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, that was the time where we started to have a discussion internally at the Canadian Olympic Committee about what do we do? And we almost changed decisions day by day. But finally, we, we got to the place where we realized it's unethical to send our athletes to games in July when they can't train in March. It doesn't matter if the games are going to be open or not. It's mm -hmm. done as of now. Ethically, right. we just can't have our athletes feel the pressure that they need to get back to the field of play because they're setting mm -hmm. a horrendous example for the rest of society. So already we've taken a lead. Canada's the first National Olympic Committee mm -hmm. to say we won't field a team even if the games go. And I think that inadvertently maybe yeah. gave the IOC a little bit of wiggle room to say, uh, you know, we, we can't make the games go. Well, you know, and the other thing that um, this makes me think of is, you know, in Canada, you know, in our leadership here, and maybe there's an opportunity here to kind of reconnect to what the Olympics actually stand for. You know, mm -hmm. as you were saying before, it's so much more than the actual activity itself. The sport itself it means so much more than it was historically and maybe like a lot of things we can kind of have a reawakening about that you know 
and, and hopefully um, athletes will use the platform, you know? Yeah. I, like I remember my press conference after I won the 100 meter backstroke in Barcelona was massive. It was Canada's first gold medal. It was a huge upset over two swimmers from United States of America. And I sometimes think like, oh, what would have happened if in that moment I was ready and I could have said, hey, I'm gay. I mean, that would have just, it would have been such a huge thing for me and, and for social change at that moment. Mm-hmm. I wasn't ready. Um, I don't think the world was ready, quite frankly, <laughs> to hear that in 1992. Um, but there is, that, there is that platform even today. So maybe the press conferences after the victory will take on a much more significant meaning in today's world. I, I think for sure that's one significant shift we're going to see. And okay, I just got. So I, I saw one question there that was, "What was my favorite moment as a broadcaster?" Oh yeah, so I've been to um, Athens, Beijing, and Rio, all with CBC as an analyst. And no question, Penny Alexiak winning the hundred meter uh, freestyle at, uh, at at Rio was just incredible. Twenty four years after my win, to kind of hand the banner or the baton to the next generation was incredible. And to have all of these amazing accomplishments, like Alex Bauman and Victor Davis and me, usurped by a sixteen year old, was fantastic. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Whoa. Um, <laughs> So we, sadly, we only have time, I think, for one more question. Um, And um, so what I'm really interested in, I think what people would love to hear is, I mean, we've never stood on a podium. We haven't done the kinds of things that you have. You've been in playing a leadership role for a long time and still are. But given the many things that you've experienced, most recently COVID and so on, how are you thinking, what is leadership, how is it different today for you than it was? Like, what are the ingredients for you when you think about what makes a leader today? Well, I guess when I look at the world, first of all, I'm really proud to be Canadian. I think we mm-hmm. are very privileged to live in this country, so I don't take that for granted. I really noted that this situation has brought out the best and the worst in people and in humanity. And so I want to err on the side of being on the, the good best side of of what comes through this. I think that leadership matters and leadership is honest and open communication and effective communication, wisdom, um, vision, humility, uh, ability to change your mind because better new information has come, Mm. not just stubbornly sticking to your path. And I think, I guess, you know, there's been a journey. And I think for all of us, it's like the stages of grief. You know, I've been through being afraid and confused and hopeless to kind of being genuinely excited about this new reality and what will happen. Um, I guess I have something called radical trust, which is I believe that humanity will figure this out. It will look different going forward, but we have the capacity to do that. But to do that, we need to do things differently. We need to amplify different voices. We need to shut up and listen and have dialogue and come to some new conclusions. I think that in a way we've had the chance to hit the reset and we have Mm. to do our best to to figure out the absolute best way forward. I love it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. There's a lot in that, what you just said. And you know what? For everyone listening, I'm sure, like, I would love to listen to all this again, which I will do. Everyone here, in fact, everyone in the whole Change for Good community will get a recording of this, of our conversation today. So you can listen to it again. 
uh, and share it and and, um, and spread the word because I think what you just said is a great recipe for almost like a manifesto for what leadership really should be. So I really oh, appreciate thanks, that. Thanks, Paul. So, Thank you. And I just I totally. also because I'm part of the Olympic movement, we're we're also and Special Olympics. I want to give a shout out also to our Paralympic movement, which is you know, follows the Olympic Games, is incredibly inspiring. Mm. Uh, ben Wahooit is one of our great Paralympic swimmers, and he's been such an inspiration to me over the years as well. So just, just a shout out. I love the Olympics, Paralympics, Special Olympics. I think that they're sort of three parts of a really important global sports stool. <laughs> That's great. And someone just said, Mark, you are a very inspiring person. So there you go. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, no, it's such a pleasure. And you know what? Uh, we... You and I will continue, and everyone can watch this uh, when they have a chance. We'll share it. Uh, and um, so thanks to you, Mark, for taking the time to do this. First of all, it's always a pleasure. Uh, and uh, thanks to everyone involved in on our team, Impact, for pulling this all together. I really appreciate that. Next week, next Thursday at 11 o'clock Eastern time, there's going to be someone that you and I both know, David Patch Evans, Patch from uh, Good Life Fitness. So um, so excited to be talking with him, incredible entrepreneur, social visionary, and everyone is watching that. There's going to be, he's going to be, he's releasing a new, uh, a new amazing new book, which is about uh, leadership uh, for, resilience for leadership. And so that's gonna be an opportunity for anyone next week to get a, a preview of what that's all about and to get a copy of it. So look forward to that. But thank you again, Mark, and thanks to everyone here today. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Paul.